Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 26th of February. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbal and Yagara people. Today, an overhaul of Australia's higher education sector. Could we one day see four out of five Australians with a university degree? Is it a pipe dream and who should pay? And concerns grow that school students are generating explicit deepfake images to bully their peers. The technology is moving at such a pace that young people are the early adopters. They are being exposed to, to some of these behaviours and some of these harms without perhaps fully understanding even the criminal nature, let alone the potentially abusive and, and harassing nature. First today, there have been some shocking new developments in the search for the bodies of a Sydney couple, Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. Police allege the accused bought an angle grinder, some weights and a padlock in his efforts to dispose of the bodies. New South Wales Police Constable Beau Lamar Condon has been charged with two counts of murder over the men's deaths. Reporter Isabel Rowe is in Bungonia, where that search is underway. She joined me a short time ago. Rachel, there's a pretty extraordinary police and media presence. Um, we're at a property in Bungonia, which is just near Goulburn. It's a private property. There are other private properties around. It's sort of a rural farmland area. And there have been several trucks of police riot squad who have arrived to search the land and trucks of police divers who have come to search again in several dams on the property. A search started for the two bodies of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies last night, but it was so dark uh, in the muddy dam on this property that they had to start again in daylight. So police divers have been doing that. If they can't find anything in that big dam, there are several other dams on the property I've seen this morning that they will search. But police have explained recently this morning that they believe that the constable, Beau Lamar Condon, who has been charged with these two murders, while he did come here and while there is evidence that he came here, he may have removed the men's bodies and they may not be here. And so police really are struggling to determine the location of these two men a week after they were last seen. And Isabel, what have we learned this morning about the alleged timeline involved in this crime? Well, basically, we have learned a lot more about the movements of Constable Bolomar Condon and what he is alleged to have done. Uh, we heard that there was a triple zero call made from Jesse Baird's phone shortly after the shots were heard uh, at the Paddington property. That's something we didn't know. And unfortunately, police say that call dropped out. We've also heard that a white van was hired uh, from Mascot near Sydney Airport and an angle grinder and weights and a padlock were purchased from a hardware store on the way to Bungonia, which is near Goulburn. It's alleged that Constable Lamar had a, an acquaintance with him, someone police say didn't know what was going on, that he spent 30 minutes inside the property after he'd used the angle grinder and the padlock to get in, and that then he left again. And it is has been confirmed that police aren't actually sure whether the bodies are still here. There is some evidence that he might have even returned and removed them again or that he didn't decide to leave them at all. And so police are still at a loss as to the exact location of these two men.
And Isabel, this comes ahead of the Mardi Gras parade this weekend in Sydney and the Sydney Morning Herald has suggested that police shouldn't take part in the march this year. What's the police commissioner had to say about that? She was absolutely adamant that this was something that police had the right to do and that LGBTIQ police felt strongly about. In relation to this instance, she described it as a crime of passion. She said it was allegedly a domestic violence incident. It was not to do with gay hate and therefore this shouldn't preclude uh, officers from taking part in the Pride March. We have been building a bridge with the gay lesbian community since the 78ers were mishandled by police back in the day. We have been participating in Mardi Gras for the last 20 years and haven't missed a year. And I would hate to see that this is the year that we are excluded because of the actions of one person that is not gay hate related. This is a crime of passion, we will allege. It is domestic related, we allege. And that would be a real travesty for this organisation to be excluded. New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb and before her, our reporter Isabel Rowe in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands. It's the biggest review of Australia's universities in decades and it calls for an overhaul of how the sector is funded. Among the recommendations of the Australian Universities Accord is the establishment of a $10 billion student infrastructure fund, which would be co-funded by government and universities. But unis are calling it a bureaucratic tax on the sector, which they say would have dire consequences for research. Rachel Hayter reports. The biggest review of the higher education sector in decades involved more than 800 public submissions and nearly 200 meetings with stakeholders. The final Universities Accord report makes more than 40 recommendations on student fees, research, teaching, student and staff welfare and international students. But perhaps one of its most controversial suggestions is a funding change. The answer is not to tax one part of the system to prop up another part of the system. It's for the government to recognise that the full cost of teaching and learning and research needs to be met if we're to have the higher education system that we really need. Mark Scott is the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney. He's pushing back against a proposed Higher Education Future Fund. It would provide money for infrastructure, like student housing, classrooms and research facilities. But it would be funded through co-contributions from government and public universities. The report identifies that additional money needs to be provided under the university funding model for educating students from low SES backgrounds. So we need to fix that funding model that's provided by the federal government to put extra money into those universities. But universities don't only teach, they do research as well. The report identifies that uh, there is a massive funding gap on the real cost of research and research is critical uh, to Australia's uh, economic future. Monash University Vice-Chancellor Sharon Pickering also thinks co-contributions are not the right approach. When universities like Monash and other leading universities across the country take an international student, that money gets invested in what is the full cost of research and in the broader infrastructure facilities and indeed student experience on our campuses. The idea that you take from the world-class part of your system 
uh, the part that puts us on the world stage, it doesn't make much sense to take from those universities to go elsewhere. The review also recommends better financial support for students and paying them for compulsory placements, something Sharon Pickering supports. Not only do students have to often forego part-time work, which is critical for them being able to attend uh, university, but sometimes they even have to relocate. President of the National Union of Students, Nairi Bogman, agrees. We're very relieved to see that a lot of the major reforms that students have been crying out for for years, like paid placements, uh, like student safety through a national ombudsman. Another significant recommendation of the Accord is the establishment of an Australian Tertiary Education Commission, which National President of the National Tertiary Education Union, Alison Barnes, supports. Governance has been a big problem for many years across Australian universities and we're hoping through things like the tertiary education we can get governance right in our universities so we put it into things like wage theft, we make sure there are staff and students' voices that are heard and we ensure that our universities are governed in the interests of staff and students and the good of the nation. Alison Barnes, the president of the National Tertiary Education Union, ending that report from Rachel Hayter. Well, it certainly sounds ambitious, but can it be done? Andrew Norton is Professor in the Practice of Higher Education Policy at the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Andrew Norton, the Vice-Chancellors that we've heard from today seem to speak with one voice and say that this proposal for a $10 billion higher education future fund is simply a tax on their chronically underfunded sector. What's your view of that fund? I think they are right because it's going to be a tax on their, sort of their own purpose income, so international student fees, donations, postgraduate fees from domestic students, which would go into this fund. It would accumulate over time with matching donations from the federal government and then sometime in the distant future would deliver some infrastructure. But in the meantime, uh, the money these universities are spending on research would be diverted to the fund and that would have big consequences for their research output and their world standing. The Accord says that by 2050 we'll need to go from the current figure of around 800,000 university students to 1.8 million. Is that even achievable as you see it? No, I don't think it is. So that's a 55% of 25 to 34-year-olds having a, a university degree or higher. And I just don't think there is a population that actually wants that level of education. So I just don't think they will do it. There's a big focus in the report about needs-based funding for students to encourage more students from disadvantage to get to university. Things like proposing uh, student income support, making that easier. Is that the kind of reform that would encourage more students to sign up? I don't think it will encourage more to sign up, but what it will do is help the people who have signed up to actually finish their degrees. So the, the universities teaching the relatively disadvantaged students would have more money to spend on teaching and you know, remedial work and all these things that would help these students actually complete their degree. It seems like this document is full of great ideas, but the issue is how can we possibly pay for reform in the current environment? Well, I think the simple answer is we can't, and the minister has been saying that it would have to be staged. So I really think what, what needs to happen is, you know, a very careful look of which of the proposals are going to deliver the, the most benefit and concentrate on those and probably to scale back the, the projected numbers in the future. And that will, that will make the overall budget numbers look a lot better.
What about reform of those loan systems, the HEX help schemes, where contributions are based on future potential earnings? Where do you see the best reform happening there? So I think there should be the expected earnings approach. And one of the reasons I say that is that people have these help debts and what that expected earnings approach does is ensure that people have got the greatest capacity to repay debt, you know, also have the, the highest debt burdens. And so I think it all makes sense from that point of view. But I think what needs to be done urgently is the current $16,000 a year fee for people doing arts and humanities type courses. And that is going to leave them with enormous debts and you know, quite possibly take decades to repay if they ever do. The government is also talking about changing the, the way people repay the debt. So at the moment, once you reach a particular income, you pay a percentage of your entire income in help repayments. And what they're suggesting is going to a marginal system. So for example, if the threshold, first threshold was $51,000 a year, uh, you earned $52,000 a year, uh, you would only pay on the $1,000 rather than the whole $52,000 like you do now. Does that kind of thinking about future repayments figure in a student's decision-making at the entry point? Look, I think often it hasn't, but in my view, it should. And I think the one upside of all this discussion of indexation that we've had over the last couple of years, where because it's indexed to CPI, indexation has been very high, 7% last year, people have really started to think about how much debt they hold and how long this will take to repay, which I think is a really important thing, uh, particularly for people doing postgraduate study, which is often where the big debts arise. Professor Andrew Norton, thanks for joining the world today. Thank you. And Professor Norton is from the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. Fire crews in Victoria are taking advantage of calmer conditions as they continue to battle a bushfire near Ballarat that's burnt out of control since last week. They're in a race against the clock with authorities warning Wednesday could be the worst fire day Victoria has seen in four years. Oliver Gordon reports. A red chopper hovers next to a massive sheet of smoke, waterbombing a bushfire that's burnt out of control for five days. Since Thursday, the Bayandine fire in western Victoria has destroyed nine homes and burned through more than 19,000 hectares. Country Fire Authority Chief Officer Jason Heffernan says it's imperative it's contained before Wednesday. We're looking at about 45 degrees in Mildura. Uh, Melbourne itself will be just below 40. Uh, most parts across the state will be in that mid-30s to, to, to high, high 30s and maybe even 40 degrees. But it's those hot northerly winds again that are going to pose a, a challenge and a, and a risk to Victorian communities. Overcast conditions, including some drizzle, are giving authorities a shot at bringing the blaze under control. Crews are building an earth trail around the fire and burning off grasses in preparation for Wednesday. They're doing all they can to avoid a repeat of last week when hot weather and strong winds swept the region. We saw how quick that fire ran. We saw how far spot fires emerged, you know, some 15 kilometres ahead of the main fire front. 
But Jason Heffernan says it's up to everyone to prepare. Trim that lawn, uh, trim the long grass, uh, clean up around the, around the house because we saw in the Bayendeen fire, uh, fire trucks were going property to property. Uh, and whilst we sadly saw six homes lost, we saw many, many, many more uh, saved and uh, just 50 in the Raglan area alone. And that was because property uh, owners and communities had made the right preparations. One of the towns that may be in the firing line on Wednesday is Beaufort. Long-time resident and news agent Jim Cox has already packed his bags. It's a bit of a sinking feeling, but you just grit your teeth. You say, I'll get on with it. It's a hard time, but he's been buoyed by the response so far. The emergency service that we have received on our phones is outstanding. The resource that they've poured in through uh, bombers, the helicopters, even to what you're seeing, um, bulldozers and that being brought in and there, you know, at fire breaks and that. So there's no resource being spared. Fellow Beaufort resident Cameron Russell is out of the state. My daughter has uh, gone up to the to the house over the weekend and she's grabbed some uh, the important documents and things out of the house. Just 10 days ago, he saw his old hometown of Pomonal next to the Grampians National Park in Victoria lose 46 homes in a bushfire. Now he's in a nervous wait to see if his current hometown is next. That was horrendous to, to find out that uh, half the town there where I used to live and people I know up there had such a devastating experience. So it's kind of on top of that, uh, seeing what's happening in the, the Beaufort fire, is, uh, it's very upsetting. Though conditions have calmed somewhat, Watch and Act warnings remain in place for some communities northwest of Ballarat, including Raglan, Waterloo and Bayendine, with authorities warning it isn't safe to return to those areas. Oliver Gordon. Ukraine's military is suffering heavy casualties in its two-year-old war with Russia. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says more than 30,000 soldiers have been killed since the invasion began. European leaders are meeting today in Paris as a gesture of solidarity with Ukraine and to send a message of resolve to the Kremlin. It comes as Russia handed over the body of opposition leader Alexei Navalny to his family, insisting he died of natural causes. Nicole Johnston reports. A devastating death toll on the trench-ridden battlefield of Ukraine. For the first time, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, has put a number on it. 31. 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers died in this war, not 300,000, not 150,000 that Putin lied about, whatever Putin and his deceitful circle are lying about. But nevertheless, each of these losses is a great sacrifice for us. Outmanned and outgunned, President Zelensky says they're running out of bullets, admitting Russia has the upper hand. Will Ukraine lose? Will it be very difficult for us? Will there be very many victims? It depends on you, on our allies, on the Western world. If we are well armed, if we have weapons, we will not lose this war. We will win it because all the backward steps that Putin makes, steps that he makes every day, they will have a huge impact on his society. Ukraine needs weapons badly. It's waiting for around $100 billion of aid from the US waiting for four months. The package has been blocked by US House Republicans. Mr Zelensky says if Donald Trump becomes president again, it could spell the end to US aid to Ukraine. Jake Sullivan is the US National Security Advisor. Speaking on ABC America, he says help is coming. 
This is not about a shortage of will, Martha. This is about a shortage of bullets. And if we can fill that shortage of bullets, Ukraine will stand up brave and courageous uh, and take the fight to the Russians. Haunya Yanchenko is a Ukrainian MP based in Kyiv and says the war has divided her family across Europe. My children are 7 and 12 years old. We are separated now for two years. My children live in Europe with a refugee status, and I see them once every three months. I miss them very much, and I miss the fact that they are growing older without mother by their, their side. But on one hand, on another hand, I'm happy that at least they are in safety. Across the border in Russia, the fallout from the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny continues. He died in an Arctic prison colony in the city of Salakhard 11 days ago. On the weekend, his body was given to his wife. She accuses Russian authorities of trying to blackmail her into a secret funeral. Yulia Navalny. You tortured him alive and now you keep torturing him dead. You mock the remains of the dead. It's impossible to come up with more devilry. You break every law, both man and God's. Brushing the allegations aside, Russia says Alexei Navalny died of natural causes, calling the claims against the state unfounded and vulgar. The US hit back with a sweeping sanctions package. Meanwhile, in Russia, dozens of demonstrators have been detained. No room for dissent and no news on when the funeral will be. Nicole Johnston reporting there. Last month, a shocking pornographic image of Taylor Swift emerged. It had been created using artificial intelligence and highlighted how advanced the technology had become. Now, Australia's eSafety Commissioner says school students are generating explicit deepfake images to bully their peers. When it happens to a global pop star, it's major news. But victims of this abuse say it can happen to anyone. Angus Randall reports. Noelle Martin was a teenager at university when she discovered she was the victim of image-based sexual abuse. I googled myself um, just out of curiosity and in an instant my life completely changed when I saw dozens upon dozens of images of me that had been taken and doctored into fake pornography. Um, and plastered all over the internet. More than a decade on, Noelle Martin has no idea who made these images. She's now a lawyer and online safety advocate. Back then, creating these kinds of images would require a basic knowledge of image editing software like Photoshop. Now, deepfake pornography can be generated by artificial intelligence with a few clicks of a mouse. I am extremely worried about how easy and, um, and quick it is to be able to create and generate fake pornographic images of, of anybody, but particularly for, for girls and women who are disproportionately targeted. And I worry that the laws that we have in Australia, it's not going to be enough because this issue is borderless and it is global in nature. And once something is on the internet, even if you can detect it's fake or not, has the capacity to cause irreparable damage. One of the most concerning uses of this technology is the creation of child abuse material. AFP Commander Helen Schneider leads a division investigating human exploitation. Uh, I can confirm that um, the AFP-led Australian Centre to Counter Child Exploitation is starting to see AI-generated child abuse material being reported through to our Child Protection Triage Unit. 
AI-generated child abuse material is under our law defined as child abuse material. Anyone found guilty of using artificial intelligence to create or distribute child abuse material faces up to 15 years in jail, and most states have laws around adult AI pornography that can also result in jail time. RMIT criminologist Anastasia Powell worries the ease of making this abuse material will normalise it. Well, unfortunately, the development of AI-assisted tools is at such a pace that we are playing catch-up. Uh, we do actually have quite robust laws here in Australia around image-based abuse, including uh, where those images have been digitally altered uh, or created artificially. Uh, so there are criminal laws that apply here if someone is using a, a removed clothing app, for instance, but there are difficulties with enforcing those laws. She says education and prevention is the key, and that starts at a young age. I think often what happens is the technology is moving at such a pace that young people are the early adopters. They are being exposed to, to some of these behaviours and some of these harms without perhaps fully understanding even the criminal nature, let alone the potentially abusive and, and harassing nature of, of some of these behaviours. Online abuse can be reported to the eSafety Commissioner at eSafety.gov.au. Angus Randall and Lincoln Rothel reporting. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Rachel Mealy. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As it battles with an economic slowdown and an ageing society, Beijing has recorded a second population decline in a row. But why is a falling birth rate necessarily a bad thing when you have a population exceeding 1.4 billion people? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.